Good evening, Patriots. And it is Thursday, March or May 5th in the year 2022. Need to read the calendar right. Make sure you're keeping your immune system strong. That is one of the big things right now in this environment with high stress and media oversaturated environment that's trying to keep you unhealthy in every possible way. Plus, who knows what they're spraying in the skies. We are surrounded by the stresses and the environmental issues that are challenging our immune systems. And keeping our immune systems strong is essential to maintaining a strong position in this fight. Expedition Coffee was designed specifically to not only give you that energy boost you need that will sustain you across the entire day while boosting your immune system and help maintain a mental focus throughout the day. You can find Expedition Coffee, X-P-E-D, Expedition Coffee at ExpeditionCoffee.com. And there you'll also find a full range of products that are designed to work as a full health ecosystem, all designed to reclaim your personal health sovereignty. Those products include the Gut Health Triad, which helps heal and seal your gut. Leaky gut is one of the critical causes of sickness in our nation. You also have Immune XP, which is an immune booster based on pine cone extract with high levels of vitamin C. Earth, which is a nutrient powder, giving your body a full complement of nutrients you need. Just mix it with water, drink it like a shake. Do that once a day. And Pure 47, one of the most refined silver extracts on the market that can isolate most of the pathogens that you'll encounter. The products on ExpeditionCoffee.com are all designed to give you back the strength in your immune system to not only endure the challenges to the immune system, but to dominate and to rise above to reclaim your true health sovereignty. So check out Expedition, X-P-E-D, ExpeditionCoffee.com. All right, Patriots. So someone just put up that they wanted to know if this show was dedicated to the National Day of Prayer. And my answer is that that's what you want me to dedicate it to. I will. But I'll be really honest. These national days of prayer irritate me because it's not something that should happen once. It should happen every day. And we do do it every day with bended knee. So if I don't typically make a big deal out of it because we literally should be doing it every day, which is why we do bended knee Monday through Friday. It's why we every show we have a prayer, which is seven days a week. So, but in sake of the fact that it's National Day of Prayer, we'll include it in our prayer tonight. People really need to like get serious about prayer. I'm serious. <laughs> and need to get serious because I am serious. How's that? There you go. And that's not an insult to the question. I just, it is really like one of these things here, looking around at the state of our world. And I, I'm, it's more about this need to give people a single day. The one thing about Bard's Nation, which is so impressive to me, is the number of people that are willing to commit daily to prayer. I was talking to a pastor the other day. Well, you know him. He's Pastor Graham. And matter of fact, he's coming on the show next week. And Pastor Graham and I were talking just about the numbers that come up with National Day of Prayer. I mean, I'm sorry, with the daily prayer here on Bard's Nation. And he was just stunned. He's like, man, dude, he goes, when you're, you have that many people coming up, you're talking about change. And that's an absolute truth. Um, the commitment that's being given by all of you on a daily basis is, um, it's just a credit to the faith. And um, it is just a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing. So anyway, oh, I see what I have here, what the problem is. I put this up as bended knee tonight. It's fishers of men. All right, I'll correct that. So anyway, anyway, 
Keep going is the point. Keep going. Keep praying. Keep strong in prayer. We need a lot of it. There's a lot of things happening right now. And, you know, I was having a conversation earlier tonight about this, is that whether or not you're locked into this perspective of, you know, kind of the white hats in control, the Q element. And, and I, you know, I say this a lot, and I do mean it. I love what Q presented. I can't stand what the Q movement has become because it just became just kind of a wait for Q to do something. And that's where my big objection is. But a lot of the information presented in Q was is massive and important because it really did open people's eyes as to the depth of this corruption. And whatever whatever the situation is in terms of um, whatever the situation is in, in terms of what's going to happen next, there is there's interesting corollaries that are, can be made to Q posts. And whether that's because they were been written in a very broad spe- spectrum, which they have, they've been, they can apply, or whether it's very specific is hard to say. But what I do know is that we're into a point right now that the public has awakened a great deal. Uh, matter of fact, phenomenally. And when you are in that component of awakening, there is ultimately going to be change. The one thing to really keep in mind, and it's something that I don't think people absorb enough of, in my personal opinion, is that we are truly in a war. It's a war of the most insidious kind, and it's a war that's never been fought like this ever in the history of mankind. It's a war based solely, principally, I should say, on information and and influence. And that war... It takes its takes a massive toll. Obviously, the side that controls the information stream, which is the deep state, which controls the treasonous media, it controls the politicians, it controls the lawyers, many of them, it controls many of the judges, it controls a large swath of the education system, it controls the development of textbooks, and and it controls entertainment and media and in theater. We've never seen that much control in a quote-unquote free society. But they've done it through their corporate partners and they've done it through unbelievable levels of complicit operations on what should be companies that are open in the free market. But through financial leverage and through blackmail and through a variety of other things, they've achieved a synchronous attack on the public, which is unprecedented. The point of that is that is the storm. We're in it. We have been in it. And through this, there is a persistent view of or persistent grabbing onto either their narrative or a narrative that will take you through. And the narrative that Bard's Nation has followed and many, many others have joined in on that same path has been a deeper relationship, a true relationship with God and with Jesus. That unwavering basis is a foundation for systemic change. And it's a type of change that will, no matter how this comes out, will forever change everybody associated, and it will forever change this nation. 
to the degree that what this nation will look like in 10 or 20 years will not reflect anything that we currently know. Most of the most of those on the other side of the fence that have hang, hung on to the to that old narrative, to the narrative of obedience, are equally going to be changed. At some point or another, there is a victor, and I don't anticipate at all that the victor will be them. On a on a simple sense, because God wins, but on a grander sense, because the commitment that comes from the movement on God's side is deeply committed to winning regardless. And whatever winning looks like, meaning that we don't have anything to worry about in this world, no matter what this comes out in this world, we are already committed to that ultimate victory. That outcome, no matter how it ends, will transform the entire world. And I think for the better. So just hang on to that because this is not going to be an easy ride. It hasn't been, but it's going, to, it's going to be really tough going forward because we have seen so much of how deep this corruption is. Let me give you some things to think about. So I'm going to start with just a, a really sobering post here that... Um, was put up a little bit ago. You know I've mentioned this account before. Absolutely top-notch Telegram account. I guess they are now on True Social. The, the Telegram account is Plastic Girl Reporting. Probably one of the best accounts I've come across in this entire fight, and I mean that. Um, whoever is running that account gives an amazing daily news brief. It's it's really worth following. Fantastic posts, really solid, and they're very solid in faith. So this is something she just put up, and it's very sobering. It's a picture of a child with a tear in its eye, a baby, a newborn. And it says, if we honored each baby aborted since 1973 with a moment of silence, we would be silent for over 100 years. Let that sink in. That is absolutely stunning when you think about it. And it's this is the sort of things I talk of, I'm talking about when I've said that there are changes that are going to be far beyond anything we can imagine. When we come to grips with just that one fact, and as a nation, we're having to face that fact now. There's no more defending abortion. In, in the many levels that it's tried to be defended, because what people tend to do, and I've said this, and you'll see it come up more and more, they're going to point to the the incest issue, the the rape issue, the medical issue, and there's others that they'll try to point to of reasons why abortion needs to exist. But here is the very sobering truth about abortion. 92 plus, almost 93%, maybe higher, of abortions were of choice by free will without any need to do so. That's a stunning statement. So any of this other garbage that they want to put out with medical procedures and women's in risk and rape and all this, it, it constitutes just a fringe of the actual issue that's at stake here. 
that's where we've arrived at now is as a nation is we have to come to grips with that reality. And each of these are layers of truth that we now have to confront as a people. And this is where literally we are in the valley of decision as a nation. We are having to now come to grips with who we are as a people, what we have become. I, for one, am am pretty much exhausted and intolerant of a lot of the liberal positions because it's always about taking something that is an exception and making it a general rule. There are about, in this country, in the military, I'll use this number because I have it pretty well, there's about 1,500 to 2,000 at most, but we'll approximately 1,500 trans people in the military, thanks to Obama. Okay? For the cause of 1,500 people, the military has changed its policies that affect over 1.5, 1.6 million people, maybe higher, depending on if we include Coast Guard and, and reserves. Okay? For one to 2,000 people. Let me give you the magnitude of that change. If a trans person is in a unit, they're going to have to have as a regular support issue, they're going to have to have hormones and potentially other medical issues, other medical needs. And the reason that, obviously the reason they need that is they're always, their bodies have to be artificially maintained. So now I want you to think about in a combat situation where these people are allowed to work into combat units, combat arms, in every supply, and when they start making up the supply chains and the supply deliveries to these units, even if they're very far forward, if there's a trans person in there, they have to account for that in their supply delivery. That means going back to warehousing, it goes back to stockpiles. That means that from the United States to a forward deployed space, wherever that is, and we'll say, for example, we'll take a unit that's deployed into Afghanistan. I mean, obviously there's a good one because that logistics in Afghanistan were a nightmare or Iraq or Central Africa or East Asia, wherever we are. That means that trans person gets such a priority that they have to modify and stockpile specific hormones for that person to maintain their combat effectiveness. That policy was put in place by Obama as part of the progressive inclusion policy. And it's a, it's ridiculous. It's the same. This is the same group that has now encouraged the idea that pregnant women can take up combat arms. They are the sickest people in the world. And women who agree to that, you have a brain damage problem. Why you would want to be in combat arms as a pregnant woman, you need to see a head shrink. And there's places that women don't belong. I'm sorry. This is the other part that I just find ridiculous is that this women trying to fight for their right to be in combat arms. It's like, okay, uh, why? And you're going to hear things like, well, yeah, well, there was great pilots. I'm not talking about capabilities because women have great capabilities. But there's a logic that doesn't make sense here in this whole world that we're in. And in this concept, we're not in a desperate sense where we have to have women on the front lines, but they're trying to convert a military where it's pretty much women first in our military. It's disgusting. 
And don't take offense to that, women, but you're, I'm sorry, that's not your position. And I feel strongly about that. So physically, you can't, women cannot do equal to men. And it is a situation where women have a powerful role in many capacities. But what man would want to put a woman on the front line of a war? And, of course, you're going to hear some of these women say, well, it's not your right to choose. It's like, well, actually it is because we were given roles for a reason. And part of that role is not to take the person who can actually birth children, carry children, and stick them in the front combat lines. And then mixing that in with men, I will tell you, it never works out well. You can hear all the stories you want. But it doesn't mix well. And, of course, what that part of what's allowing that is this very liberal abortion policy, very liberal birth control policy, very liberal policies towards encouraging motherhood. I mean, the idea is that motherhood's an option, and you can get around to it when you want because your career is going to come first as a woman which is another one of these sick ideas that the left has, the progressive has, which is where they want to take this in our picture of things. And they're, they're, I would suspect, not knowing what's to come, but I would suspect they're going to try to do this. And I, and I think that they do have some measure of input, input on this release on Roe versus Wade. They know very well that the shot is sterilizing people the clot shot. And they know very well that abortion, especially since there's about 30 plus states that have already voted to ban abortion. They know very well that abortion is not popular. So what you're probably going to see in the combination of things is they know that there's increased sterility in our population. And they know that the idea of Abortion is diminishing. They need certain states to be strong in abortion. One of those will be California. But watch for them to rebrand Planned Parenthood clinics as helping parents get pregnant. They're going to be like fertility clinics, but it's going to be a whole different thing. And I can guarantee you this is coming. And what that's going to be is they're going to go to not fertility clinics, but literally like the new type of fertility clinic, which is where you can have your baby grown in an artificial womb. That technology has been here for 20 years. And they're already talking about it if you're tracking the kind of the advanced science of doing designer babies. Because the ultimate goal here is to remove the interest and the ability both of people having children. They're already starting this narrative with the progressive left that having children is passe. Why do it when we can grow children in an incub- in, a, in a birthing artificial womb? So the idea would be that you would be able to go to a clinic, depending on your amount, the amount of money you make and the status you have, you're going to get certain abilities to choose or certain options for your child. And so if you are in the elite, you can choose to have a child, say, with advanced IQ, advanced uh, speed in running, advanced uh, acuity for playing violin, advanced math skills, better eyesight. And there's a lot of things that they could do. 
specific bone structure, color, and their ideas are going to be able to genetically design this as they incubate this child in an artificial womb, and then you'll just pick it up when you're done. For the people that are on a UBI, universal basic income, which means that you're part of the mass of slaves, you'll be given an option to have a child. It'll cost you a certain significant chunk of your basic income, but your the designer options for your child will not be offered. You'll get a simple choice like, would you like it to be a blonde, a brunette, or a redhead? Would you like the child to have blue eyes or brown eyes? Those sorts of little things. But the overall base unit that they would work with would be a dumbed-down, intellectually limited child in their design. They would be... They would not have the athletic prowess or the acumen or the intellectual skills to compete with the elite. That is ultimately their plan. So this is where, like I say, this fight is far from over. And what we're talking about in preserving life, and we're talking about preserving the choice of I mean, a, a responsible choice of pregnancy, not a choice of pregnancy to say that if I get pregnant, I'm going to abort it, but rather you need to carry it to term. We're, pre, we're protecting the normal process that God gave us. And this is another one of those battlefields of fight you have to be prepared for. And this is a great quote that came out today. And actually, the way the meme was done, they put this on the wrapper of a condom, and it was fantastic. It says, I'm sorry, but if you wore a mask for two years to prevent COVID, you can wear a condom during sex to prevent pregnancy. Those simple facts are exactly what the abortion issue doesn't want to acknowledge. And it goes back to those statistics again because they are wanting you to believe that every woman is going to be victimized, that everyone's a victim. That's the left's and progressive mentality. It is... Since everybody's a victim, we always have to worry about everyone. Well, not everyone's a victim. 92% of the people that did abortions were not victims. Because those statistics show differently when you actually read them. 92% of those people made a choice to have an abortion. And maybe that choice was driven by the fact that they got wrapped up in the heat of the moment, whatever. But... The fact of the matter is that that was a massive chunk of people out of when you take 70 million abortions in this country since 1973. I mean, to say that number again, 70 million. That's almost as many people that supposedly voted for Biden. That's insane. And this is that type of, we're talking the level of population, to give you an idea of that, New York City proper has about 10 or 12 million. New York City metropolitan area has about 20 million people. So if you are, when we're talking 70 million children aborted, we are talking four New York cities worth of people that have been aborted and turned into all sorts of things like using their fetal cells for experimentation, selling fetal cells to food companies to build new taste and flavors and colors, using 
I mean, I could, using the fetal cells in drug production. I mean, it just goes on, and it's it's so unbelievable. I mean, there was a post that came out the other day that is truly worth asking the question on, and and the post was simply this. Not a post, but it was a, a law that they just passed. And I want to say it was, I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say that it was passed in Oklahoma, maybe. And it basically said we they're banning the use of human body parts in the processing of food and meat. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. Who is doing that? That would make you have to pass a bill for it. That should be disturbing in itself. The level of sickness that we are dealing with in mental sickness we are dealing with in this culture is beyond anything we've ever imagined. And so when you see an indication of just how rabid the left becomes in whatever numbers over the fact that they're arguing to defend and fight and be violent over the idea of the right to kill a child. And they've convinced themselves in this neurotic way that in the, in the effectiveness of the brainwashing that the child isn't alive. I don't know what, what it is then because it's a part of them. But what we do know is none of them have ever had a child. So you have no idea what that's like. Obviously, I haven't. I can only go by what others have gone through. But my point being that as men, we can at least have an appreciation for part of that process. But I can't imagine. I mean, I that's a part of the woman. And I mean, just to say that it's like these people obviously have never even considered the idea of carrying something alive in them to have a woman stand up and advocate for this. But I said this the other night and I'm very clear about this. When you look deeper at the people that are the strong voices for this, many of these quote women aren't women at all. They're gender flippers. Anyway, they may look like a woman, but they're gender flippers, which would honestly which would very honestly explain a lot of the lack of empathy for the process of birth and what God gave us. So here's another, this is another great quote, and we'll kind of move forward here. Uh, Just let's kind of wrap that piece up. Joy Bar of the B-E-H-A-R, Bear, Bor, Behar, whatever her name is. She's from the, the morning show with Whoopi. The view. She's declared that they want to have a sex strike to not have sex with any man that doesn't support abortion. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Sounds like men just won because those hags, you don't want to have sex with them anyway. So I think men just had a big victory. Congratulations, men. We won a war and didn't even have to fight it. They threw up the, the, we, they flew up the flag, and it's now a victory. So men can be proud about that. Conservative men, you're now safe. You will, if, As long as you go to your first meeting with a date and you tell them that you're, you're against abortion, you will immediately sort out any future problems. And in the process, most of them are jabbed anyway, so you will keep yourself from being cross-contaminated. Wow, that's awesome. Thank you, Joy, for that great victory. We're very proud of you for helping save a lot of very good men. Victory accomplished without even firing a shot. See how that works? That's that's Cywar, man. That's absolute Cywar. I love this. We're winning. Can I put that one up on the board? We're winning. By the way, happy Cinco de Mayo today. Or for you on the East Coast, that was yesterday, but I am getting to it finally today. And 
I had for Cinco de Mayo, my mom grew up in Mexico. Um, my grandfather, all Americans, but my grandfather was uh, was the head foreman for American smelting down there, and that was years. My great-grandmother uh, had a hotel down in Chihuahua, and they ran a hotel that even Pancho Villa stayed at. How's that? That's pretty cool. So they were in, in Mexico for about 40 or even longer, maybe even 60 years. My grandfather was in Mexico for something like 40 years. My mom grew up in Mexico and was there for about 16 or 18 years. So obviously, um, that whole they all spoke fluent Spanish, and I don't speak any, though I do speak French. But anyway, all that, that's a long story to say that we had fantastic Cinco de Mayo tonight meal. And um, we are, our meal was homemade refried beans with, uh, with traditional made guacamole and fish tacos, which were tacos. We call them fish tacos. They were actually shrimp tacos. Absolutely awesome. So it is, it is excellente. (laughs) I'm there you go. Mucho, mucho bueno, good. How's that? I've obviously my I'm making it even worse than my Spanish already is, so it doesn't help. I'll be quiet now. That's good. Hey, so here's another great quote. Um, this is awesome, and I I totally think this. There's a lot to this statement. That I want to kind of unpack, and it's this: the unjabbed. This came from another post today. The unjabbed are truly a different breed from the rest. They threw every lie they could think of at us, and we didn't flinch. That is absolute truth. And it also does not include a certain percentage of the Q movement that listened to Trump and took the jab. So good job, idiots. Dumb. But here's my point. Um. This creates, when I started this, I talked about how we started tonight's show. I talked about how the long-term effects of this war will change this nation forever. And it will in ways that we can't foresee. One of them, the example I gave is abortion because that magnitude of that destruction of children, unborns, is going to rest very heavy on the truths that must be confronted as a nation in order for us to actually truly be a nation. We can't continue as a nation by killing children or or valuing so poorly or so lowly valuing life that children become disposable. Here's another one of these. There are a mass of people in this country. I don't have the numbers. We won't really know those numbers for many years. But my guess is that it's representative of approximately 40% and maybe as high as 60% of the public never took a jab and never wore a mask. So that's probably in the range of about 40%, maybe as, and it could be as low as 30, but nonetheless, that's a lot of people. And so we'll just, for the sake of talking, we're going to say to make it kind of shake all that out. We'll say 30% for tonight. So roughly a hundred and, 10 million people, 110 million people didn't take the jab and didn't wear a mask, both. Now, that, those people are, have been through the, 
pressuring of the state, the excoriation by the by the slave masked, masked people, the slaves, they have avoided being part of the hive mind and they've stood strong as individuals and they've endured this storm. As much as we can talk about healing in this nation, and, and we do want this nation healed, but that group of people will always stand out. They will stand out the longer we go down into the reveal process and the more that the reality comes out that what those others went through, meaning what they chose to go through by taking the injection, by not thinking, by being obedient slaves to a pandemic. This other group that has stood on the side and said, nope, this doesn't pass the smell test. This is all wrong. This is all a lie. We're not going to comply to the mask, and we're not going to comply to the jab, no matter what that number is. And my guess is that number somewhere around 100 million people. This nation will be led by those in the end, will be influenced deeply by those, and this nation will never be the same as a result of that 100 million that will never let it happen again. So again, this is a very, very serious moment in time for our nation as we are truly transformed into a completely different way. And put into, I would say, maturing as a nation, as we must, because we have lived in the twilight of ignorance and naivety for a long time now. We kind of held on to this sort of uh, place that we were just kind of, we were just a free country. It's all good. We can do what we want and no sense of accountability. And we're now at a place where accountability is in our face. The world has suffered a great deal because of our stupidity and because of our complacency. And I know that doesn't set well many times to hear those words. And I know that it's also easy to say, well, obviously when I say them, I, you know, I bet he doesn't mean me. Unfortunately, I mean everyone, including myself, when I say that. Because at one point or another, we have all jumped on the stupid train. And I think it's important that we address that because and, and look at that in a, in a strong way, not because we want to go through this process of I'm unworthy, but because we have to be honest. These people took power from us because we let them. These people have been in power because we've allowed it. And we've, we've known for a long time that politics have been corrupt. I would bet I would offer the expectation that if I was to ask anybody, are politics corrupt? I would hear almost universally, yes. So the question that I would ask is, if you know that the people that are ruling you are corrupt, why would you expect or any of us ever expect anything other than a corrupt outcome? I mean, we talk like now, we talk right now in terms of these bold things like the criminal class. They've always been a criminal class and we've all known it. I've known it, but I haven't wanted to say it or I haven't wanted to put it in that sort of context. I'm kind of like, well, we voted, we did the best we can. And this was part of what I talked about last night, which I think is extremely important to address here, which is when we're standing in front of God, 
and we're being judged, I don't hear us being able to say, well, gee, Lord, I, I did the best I could. I, that's not going to fly. And so I want to reread what I read last night, uh, which is, it is Luke 16, 19 to 31. And, I, and this is the rich man and Lazarus. And I really want you to hear this from the lens of very specific outcomes. We have an obligation in this world, in my opinion, to work as hard as we possibly can, like at a super athlete level, to be as great as we can, as perfect as we can within the light of Christ. That we have to fight for the laws of God and we have to fight for those obligations that we have each and every day without hesitation. And we can't let ourselves compromise. And with that, even each day we're going to stumble. And that's where the repenting process for me is a constant cycle. It is not just one day and like, okay, I do it once in my life, I'm good. I'll do maybe a yearly checkup with God. This is a regular thing because it's very much like a super athlete. So before I jump into this passage, I I want to share a little bit with you in some of my life. I've had a very blessed experience in my life of being able to perform and to work with truly some of the best of the best in the world. That started when I was young. I, I had the opportunity in high school that my high school wrestling coach was a Olympian. And so when you have a coach that was an Olympian, you learn a caliber of training and performance expectation that's higher than most. And it is hard work. I've had the blessed opportunity when I was in college to row with Oregon State recruit team for two and a half years. My coach was a national sculling champion, and we cross-trained with the Canadian gold medal team. And we also competed towards being accepted into the Olympic team. So that, again, your performance standards are exorbitantly high. When I trained in martial arts, I had an opportunity to train with Master Chun Li, who was considered to be one of the great Taekwondo masters of all time. So again, performance standards. When I learned photography, I learned photography from a Pulitzer Prize winner, two-time, in fact, combat photographer, And again, you learn the performance standards of what it is to truly go way beyond what you thought was possible. And then in Afghanistan, I had the the honor to work with and work alongside of special forces and elite special operators. And again, you the expectation when you're on these groups and on these teams, your performance standards are have to go beyond anything that you thought possible. Why do I share that? Because it's not about me giving a scratch on the back because that's my life and that's just it. But here's why I share it. We need to be taking our faith to that level. You need to think of yourself. Every one of us thinks, and I I don't ever like saying you, my belief is that we all have the obligation to God to be running like super athletes in our faith. And there shouldn't be any exception to this. 
Each one of us has vices we're working through. Each one of us has imperfections we're working through. Each one of us has baggage. We have habits, whatever it is, the things that are, are not perfect. And many of them are lifetime challenges. That's fine. But that doesn't mean that every single day you aren't striving to overcome it, surpass it, do better, whatever, than what you did the day before. And like every athlete, when you compete, you're not going to have a triple A plus performance day every day. That athlete that gets out on the track and runs and works towards a world-class level that then injures themselves doesn't quit. They might take a few months off. It might take a year. Their training might transform completely. They may not be at the same standard that they were before the injury but they will work through it until they can overcome the injury and they will get back to where they were. Meaning that you never quit, you never stop. And to me, that's ultimately in everything that I do in my life, that's what I try to strive for. And I don't always hit it. But I believe that it's essential that we strive for it because when you're striving is when you start to accomplish greater and greater things. And I think that when we're communicating with God with that sincerity in our heart, I truly think that the blessings that we are given, the doors open that only he could open, and we see that result. So let me read Luke 16, 19 to 31, and kind of keep what I just said there in the framing of this passage, which is very much like a parable, but just think of the idea of suffering as a performance standard, which is an odd thing to say, but like enduring to the very end in pureness and truth to, to God and the outcome of that, of seeing those that kind of take life casually, which would be the rich man. So here we go. Now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may lip dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that they may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, he, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. There's real consequences in this passage. And to me, it, it sinks home on many levels. And it is a, a, one of these passages that is a constant reminder to me of a lot of things. And one of those is the struggle of life. Lazarus has had, obviously, an extremely difficult life. I would argue that he did not choose to be poor and covered in sores and begging for scraps of food. But Lazarus endured that life no matter how difficult. This, to me, is kind of the point, is we become very comfortable with where we are, all of us. And in the midst of this war right now, and it is a war, where we become often very complacent to where we look to another day, we look to tomorrow, maybe things will get better. What type of fun things can I do today? And in no way am I suggesting that there should not be joy and laughter and all this. But my point is the dedication to mission. We have to give every single thing we can like the super athlete. And here's the guarantee. When you're pushing that hard, you are going to be misunderstood by many. Who cares? Because the fight that we're trying to pursue right now is the victory for God, not the victory for us. And whether that, whether that place in that pursuit is being a better parent, whether that piece is being more dedicated to your relationship with your husband or wife, having a more intimate relationship with Christ, trusting more deeply in what God gives us. Many of those things all come together. When we do that and we take our life and our, our walking very much like a super athlete, you want to push the standards of what you do. And when you push those standards and you're trying to outdo yourself and outdo your performance, you never let yourself sit and or get comfortable. And that's the difference between a super performer and someone who just does well. Stewarding in our life is often just a concept of like, well, you know, I had this, I did the best I can, but I, I didn't succeed. That's not good stewardship in my opinion. And in my opinion, when we're stewarding for God, we have to be able to say, I did every single thing I could. Regardless of what that outcome is, it's the right outcome for God because you've taken the opportunity and you have done everything. If that means that you have to work two jobs to accomplish what you need to do, if that means that you have to work three jobs to accomplish what you need to do, if that means that you're, you're sleeping less and working longer hours, all of those, whatever that is, I mean, that's what it requires. And sometimes we're not going to finish every day and say like, man, I did the best. I, I'm really happy with that day because many days we won't. But that also means that the next day you have to go farther and harder. You have to commit deeper. And in that way of living, when we take every single challenge put before us to strive to greatness that Father gives us, we're achieving that life, which isn't necessarily comfortable, but the one absolute thing that's true is it is completely dedicated in the right way to father. We're a very privileged and 
blessed society, whether you realize, whether we as a collective group realize that or not. If we listen to the narrative of the left or the progressives, all you're going to hear is misery and complaining. The fact of the matter is most people on the left have never really experienced true abject poverty, true abject suffering, more or the suffering through war like many cultures have. So they don't really know. I'm not going to say all of them, but they don't really know the true issues of pain and sacrifice and sacrifice. Our position is not necessarily to explore that what that pain and sacrifice is, but we definitely have to be pursuing the greatness which God puts before us. And when we do, man, I mean, that's like building the special operations team for God. And to me, that's a choice that we each can make of whether you want to be on that team or whether you want to be on the, the B team of doing the best I can. Whether you want to be on the A team, it's like there's nothing that I can't accomplish. And when you get that mindset in and you're walking with God, there is literally no mountain that can't be moved. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening very humbled and very emboldened with the opportunities that sit before us that you have given us and we've had our entire life. So, Father, tonight we just pray for that desire to reach deeper, to reach farther, to push harder than we've ever had, to seek out the deeper relationship with you, the deeper relationship with Jesus, to walk in a more perfect way as much as we possibly can. And when we stumble, to put ourselves humbly before you, repent and get back up and start climbing, to get real about what this world is, to quit with this, just shed off this idea that somehow we're unworthy, but instead to accept the fact that we're imperfect, to humble ourselves enough to put us ourselves before you to say, Father, I'm imperfect accept the responsibility for our sins and get up and start climbing the mountain again. We need that fire, Father. And we just pray for the many that will just embrace that in their heart and shut off this propaganda nonsense that somehow we're not worthy because we know that we're here, we're your children, we're, we're of royal blood, and you believe in us like a father would. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for the confidence. Thank you for the love. Thank you for all that you've given us. And now may we rise. May we be bold in this world. May we strive. And, and Father, you know as we do, we will stumble. So we will be there on our knees asking forgiveness when we do. But our hearts are full of the love and the excitement of what you give us and this opportunity to have dominion over all evil and to do greater works than he and to seek the ancient paths. So guide us, Father, in all we do. We say these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Everything is possible with the Father, with God. And how that message gets turned into we are not worthy, I don't know. Because I hear it a lot and I just shake my head at it. If we weren't worthy, we'd already be buried under an earthquake or a flood somewhere. And when we hear that we are not worthy, it is literally the same question I, you, the same type of perspective that you hear 
and think about what I'm going to say from those that are supporting abortion, because what they're saying is the fetus inside of them is not worthy of life, so they're going to take it out. So when we're repeating this idea that we're sinners and we're not worthy, I'm not buying it. If a baby's precious, so is life precious. And if God gave us the blessing of life, don't waste it. This is an opportunity to live boldly like you will never live any other time. And to have an opportunity to seek the relationship with Christ, to make the errors that we do, stumble, get back up after we repent and get at it again. Because there's a long, tall, narrow path to climb. And it's not going to be easy. It never was intended to be easy. But the rewards on the other side are life. And that's worth everything. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us and he'll never forsake us. But our prayers right now, I would just encourage everybody to pray deep for a deeper and more powerful relationship with God. A relationship that pushes us at a level you've never imagined possible. Just like running up that mountain until you can hardly breathe or walk when you get to the top, but you accomplished it. doesn't matter what place you finish. It's the fact that you never quit and never gave in. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But the deal here is simple. We are here in this time and this place because God needs us and wants us here. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Mission forward. Patriots, I'll see you tomorrow afternoon for bended knee 1 p.m pacific until then or until the next time god bless good night thank you and out for now all this time we had to prove that we could stand here too all the nights been pushing through fight for all we had to lose for something to pull us up to the level ground oh i can see it now i can see it now
down over the hill where the lost got found. Reaching through somehow. Oh, you're an island when the world is too loud. When the seasons change, I know the space between us will stay the same. Resting on this faith, when your soul answers calls far away. Safe place to hide from the rain.